to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is episode number 158, 158. And uh, pretty interesting. If you have any questions or comments, and we actually have a backlog of them, um, go ahead and email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. Or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean. Um, I hate saying um, but I say it all the time. It's a different world we live in today. I mean, it is a significantly different world. Um, um, There, I said it again. Crime has just become epidemic, as if you can't tell. And the interesting part of this is there's two factors. Number one, when it is a shooting, now it, it basically is based on the perpetrator. And if the perpetrator does not fit their preconceived notions of what a perpetrator should be, the story just vanishes. Because they're not interested in reporting on the killings perpetrated by a black person. They're not particularly interested in killings perpetrated by a Latino person. They are if it's a white person, but if it's against other white people, they don't really care that much. So it's it's the racism in reporting is horrible. And of course, you know, it, this goes well beyond just reporting of shooting. Um, frankly, it's disgusting the way they portray people in whatever ethnic group um, or whatever racial group. It's, it's disgusting. They, they play on stereotypes. It is horrible and it is absolutely disgusting. But that's just the shootings. You know, the crime that's on the rise is violent crime that is not really related to guns, which puts the left in a terrible conundrum because they can't blame it on gun violence. Uh, the four stabbings in Moscow, Idaho um, are not gun violence. I would... I would proffer that had someone in that home had a gun, they might have, you know, prevented all or at least some of that tragedy. But, you know, that's not gun violence. Yet that is the case that's gripping the nation. Um, You know, the the horrible, horrible things that are going on. Um, You know, you see it in, in one is in New York City, guy just walking down the street, minding his own business. And a guy comes up and he looks around and he's on camera. He doesn't know it. And he pulls a, it looks like a little league bat, you know, kind of a smaller baseball bat that he's got, you know, kind of shoved down his pants and inside his coat. And he proceeds just to hammer the guy who's just walking down the street, minding his own business, doesn't know him, doesn't, the randomness of not knowing who your attacker is. It's just an arbitrary victim. And this is where the racism kind of falls in. The victim appeared to be black, and the perpetrator appeared to be white or Latino. Can't really tell, because he's wearing kind of a baklava thing. You can see part of his face, but not all of it. And, uh, you know, that man was beaten. Got a, he, I mean, you, you get hit with a baseball bat, you know it. I mean, and he's in the hospital now. Um, again, he can't do it in New York City, but if he had a snub-nosed pistol... He could have defended himself because that guy could have easily, the perpetrator could have easily 
hit him three or four more times. And, and I don't know about you, I can't take a couple of hits from a baseball bat. You know, I mean, I'm just, I'm just too frail. I cannot take a couple of hits from a baseball bat. And I don't know that I ever really could. You know, I mean, uh, I would heal faster when I was younger. But I don't know that you, especially, you know, he, he hit this man in the head with a bat. That's, that's attempted murder right there as far as I'm concerned. But we'll see what happens. Um, the one shooting that kind of did get some attention is, hey, somebody shoots up a gay club. So immediately they figure it's some horrible you know, MAGA person who hates gays. And it turns out the guy's non-binary. There was some, I, I don't think they've divined his motive, but I think it's it's fairly obvious. He he probably had a personal grudge against, maybe the place threw him out or something. Um, but, you know, this is, this is the kind of stuff we're going up against. It's this arbitrary crime. And a lot of it is not gun related. Another horrible story little girl on the street gets abducted and murdered by a FedEx driver. Now, he didn't use a gun. He used something else. I mean, this is the kind of stuff. This is Biden's. This is Joe Biden's America. This is the Democratic Party America. The George Soros prosecutors and other soft on crime people. They've allowed this just to go on. Uh, there was the, the most disturbing one I saw, which actually was almost funny, was it was an Apple store, I think, in San Francisco. And just some dudes walk in, and they just start taking stuff. And nobody stops them. And in fact, the customers are told, just hey, just kind of stay out of their way. Let them, let them do what they want. And these guys basically threatened the customers, saying anybody who tries to stop us, you know, we're gonna we're gonna beat your ass is what he what he said, which makes it a strong arm robbery with a threat of violence, which is a felony, big time felony. And uh, they stole like sixty thousand dollars worth of you know the little pads and the phones and all this other electronic stuff that we can't live without. And the interesting part is they said, well, the police they had a description, but they don't have any suspects. And apparently they're not even looking for suspects. They're not even looking because they just they just don't want to bother with that. Yet the danger that you and I as the general public is in, these guys, what if, what if the guys, what if they're armed? What if the guy pulls out a baseball bat or a machete and just starts whacking people because he doesn't like the way they look at him? You know, not all crime is economic. As a matter of fact, most of it is not. And... Uh, this is evil stuff. It is evil stuff. And it's coming to you complimentary of Joe Biden. And of course, I think he's going to get more help. We'll see how the election in Georgia turns out. But he'll probably get some more help. You know, poor old Herschel Walker. We'll see if he... I mean, you talk about a guy who's had more mud slung at him. <laughs> and I don't even know. I, I don't know if it's true. I don't really... You know, we're supposed to forget about Bill Clinton's past, and we're supposed to forget about the past of, of these wonderful Democrats that are in. But when it comes to a guy like Herschel Walker, they're, they're dragging up old girlfriends from 30 years ago, or people who say they were girlfriends, and, and uh, you know, they're, they're testifying, he paid for an abortion, he did this, he did that. We don't even know if any of that is true. And in fact, we suspect most of it is not true. But even if it is, we're supposed to take that into account and 
Democrats always get a, you know, you look at Fetterman, Fetter zombie, you know, the zombie that got elected by, um, by the Democratic Party in Pennsylvania. And if that wasn't a shady election, man, I don't know what. But, you know, um, and I have to say this for YouTube, uh, so that I've got two strikes. I'm look, trying to get number three. Yes, the 2020 election was fraudulent. It was rigged and there was voter fraud. And same thing with the 2022 election. Tell me that some of these... And we talked about this the last last podcast. You know, it used to be that, hey, the next day you knew who won, who lost. Well, nowadays, with the early voting and this, all the mail-in voting, it's taking them days and days and days to count the votes. And, and it looks like they're finding votes so that the right person gets elected in Arizona and Nevada. Probably some of that in Georgia, you know. So if we don't have elections anymore, what do we have? We have the Joe Biden Taliban running the freaking country. Taliban. You know, no wonder he gave them all the weapons. You know, he gave them <laughs> billions in weapons for the Taliban. And he's, he's trying to break that record with Ukraine. He's trying to break that record with Ukraine. Which kind of brings me to the next, next deal. You know, has anybody... Has anybody really got a outside of the initial press releases? Anybody seen anything on the two seven seven Fury? I know that after the army announced that they were going to get this thing called the M five, which was a it's essentially a battle rifle built on kind of AR mechanicals, AR ten mechanicals, I suppose. Um, and and Sig was already making a civilian a similar civilian version of this thing and apparently those things were selling for like ten or twelve thousand dollars the price just skyrocketed because there's always people with money who have to have the latest and um, i don't even know where they're getting the ammunition but you know is this thing ever going to take off i i still think i still think this is a i don't know i i don't want to say a fake I think it's a head fake. I mean, and the people doing it may not even realize that they're faking, but I don't see this happening. Um, I just don't see it happening. I see it happening for some special mission units. Could very well for that. But um, going back to a battle rifle doesn't seem to be what's going to happen. So we'll see. We'll see what uh, what goes on. You know, one of the things uh, is... If you want a cartridge to become popular, it has to be two things, available and affordable. And right now, the only two calibers, well, there's three calibers that, that fit that. One is 22 long rifle, which we disregard. But those of us remember back after Sandy Hook, remember for two years, you couldn't get Two or three years, couldn't get a 22 long rifle. It was hard to find because they weren't making it because it didn't have enough margin. So they weren't making it. Now it seems even with the current, you know, ammo thing that's been going back to 2020, which is God, almost three years now, um, that essentially we have um, 
you know, 22 ammo is out and about. I see it everywhere, so it, it can't be that hard to find. It's not cheap like it used to be, but it's still there. Uh, other things that are that are out there is the ones we're really talking about are 9mm and 5.56. I mean, they're out there. They're available. Uh, if you hunt around, you can find 5.56 retail for about 50 cents a round. It's not bad. I mean, it, it's it's so horrible, but it's not bad. I think if you buy it online and you buy enough of it, you can get it down to about 35 cents a round, which is better, which is better. Uh, 9 mil is still going to be out there. And most of the 9 mil I see out there is ball ammunition. So right away, it shoots a hole in the fact that, well, with the advances in all of this ammunition that, we, that we've had, 9 millimeter is effective as 45 and blah, 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 blah. It's the most effective pistol caliber there because so much development has been put into the ammo. All the gun creators, it's almost like a talking point that's been given to them by the industry. The problem is the 9 millimeter ammunition you find is all hardball. Because manufacturers realize we need this stuff to basically function in every gun. And we need it at a low enough price point so that people will actually buy it. Because $50 a box for, uh, you know, the specialty super duper hollow point plus B plus 9mm, you know, they're not going to sell that many boxes of that. So the money they make is, is off the regular ball ammunition, which is effectively the same cartridge that came out in... 1904 okay 119 years ago <laughs> the nine millimeter came out comparatively speaking the 45 acp post dates that it's actually a more modern cartridge so think about that think about that it is totally amazing but to get back to the 277 fury even if you buy the gun, how much of the ammo are you going to buy? And unless you're very well resourced money-wise, um, it's just not going to happen. I mean, if the stuff is costing you $2 a round, how many rounds are you going to realistically fire? Unless you're wealthy enough so that that is not a, a factor. That's not a constraint. So if you're a Hollywood guy or an NFL player or someone with a giant trust fund or someone who's been incredibly talented in business, unless you're somebody like that and you've made or have access to a whole lot of money, 277 Fury doesn't even make any sense. Um, 308 Winchester 762 NATO is not cheap. It is not cheap, but at least... It is compared to 277 Fury, and what have you really lost? You know, people always say, well, 6.5 Creedmoor is better than 7.62 NATO. Oh, that's true. My 6.5 Creedmoor will outshoot um, a similar rifle in 7.62 NATO because it's got a flatter trajectory, milder recoil. I shoot it better. Humma, humma, humma. However, the ammunition is harder to find in super quality ammunition. You can find some hunting quality ammunition. And it's very expensive. So it's not better. Is it better? They always want to talk all of these uh, technical specifications as to why something's better than something else. Sometimes available is better. 
And so I kind of look at it and I say, well, available is a lot better than non-available. And I worry sometimes that, you know, they're so busy trying to sell the latest and greatest thing, idea. And 5.7 by 28, 5.7 by 28 is a total, is, a, is, is really a total example of this they were pushing that so freaking hard i i told you if you go back way back in the archives and i don't even know what episode it is when ruger introduced the the um five their five seven pistol that that was the new hotness people couldn't get enough of five seven they couldn't get enough of the new ruger new ruger was selling for about three three or four hundred bucks above msrp that's how bad people wanted them not a very good <laughs> investment but um, people wanted them and so that was it that was it um, and then they found out that the cost of the ammunition is prohibitive the performance is the performance it's certainly inferior to 556 by a long shot um, whether it's superior to any other kind of pistol cartridge is debatable, but I, I would sit there and say for the cost, it's just not worth it. I mean, it's just not worth it. You could you could do with a lot of other things. And, and, and face it, nobody really makes a pistol unless it's a 22 plinker. Uh, people don't make pistols under... 30 caliber and usually under 38 9 millimeter they just they have never sold well they've never done well you know 327 federal and and uh 32 h&r magnum none of the, the as and they weren't bad cartridges but they're just not going to they just don't sell less than 38 caliber the nine millimeter doesn't sell so um it's it's that and and the, as a side note then ruger brought out the carbine in 5.7 now why they did not use their tried and true pcc the ruger pc carbine and use that as a basis i cannot tell you why they didn't you know redesign that i don't know instead they used their pistol as the base and you know pretty unanimously everybody says it's crap it's expensive <laughs> the gun is now expensive the ammo is expensive and it's crappy to boot so nobody likes it nobody wants it it's clunky to use so it's it's pretty bad um i don't know you know i i just sit there and go hey the ps90 is very cool i like it but i don't like it enough to give up 556 i mean you've got face it if you've got a adjustable buttstock 556 with a 14.5 inch barrel and a flash suppressor on it to make it all legal you've got a pretty compact weapon there to begin with uh, i mean you could go the sbr route and go even shorter i don't think that's very smart but you could do that and, and you got a very compact weapon for a lot less cost than some of these others and your ammo cost will certainly be less so you know availability and cost are big factors in caliber selection it all isn't just technical specifications and what the cool guys use and and everything else um 
Anyway, those are just some observations. And we can now go to my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. I've got a whole bunch of them today, and a whole bunch of them are actually um, related. So it'll be it'll be pretty pretty interesting, at least for me. So anyway, the first question is what is the most useless weapon of World War One from a design perspective? That's an interesting question, because usually if you say, what's the most worthless weapon of World War One?" everybody says, oh, the Chauche, you know, it was unreliable, it, you know, it didn't work very well, and, you know, everybody hated it, and anybody who tries to shoot it, you can't get a cheek weld on it, because the way you, because somehow they managed to design the buttstock in a way that it won't fit anybody's face, so just getting a sight picture on it is, is difficult, and that's, that's the easy answer. Uh, my answer is from a design perspective it wasn't that bad considering when it was designed and had it been had they kind of put maybe larger more offset sights or something on there they could have and and a better and a cheek pad they probably could have overcome some of the problems with sighting it and of course the magazines that had the cutouts in them so you could see how many rounds were in there was the height of stupidity even you know you could train a chipmunk to design a weapon and they would never design that in especially for a weapon being used in the the trenches and it shows you how far away the people who were generating things and the people who were approving things in France in World War One were away from the front line and the conditions there uh, but you know it was designed as a automatic rifle really um they would call them a machine rifle way back in the day too and it was designed so hey when you're charging over the top you can take a machine gun with you because the machine guns they had at the time were all way too heavy um even the british lewis gun is a pretty heavy heavy uh, article and these were supposed to be lighter more portable and give you that rapid you know fire at whatever point you needed it on the battlefield um it sort of worked and there were even some countries like greece and finland who got who, who didn't have any money at the end of the war especially finland you know finland is a small country uh, population wise and they didn't have any cash so they bought ruby pistols and chow and and used them for a few years until better stuff could come along but you know they were just good enough so that um uh, you know, they, they could work for a little while. You could you could use them as a stopgap, and that's so they they weren't a complete failure, and and they weren't useless. I had to say I had to think about this. Uh, I think the Pedersen device was never put into, well, it was put into production, but it was never fielded. So you can't really say that because we don't know how useless it was or wasn't. My my thought on this. Is that the Pedersen device there would have been one or two per squad or maybe two per platoon or something and they just wouldn't have amounted to anything they just never would have been at the right place at the right time every rifleman was not going to get one of these things because they couldn't produce enough of the rifles that had the cutout and and the uh, the little mechanical things inside that would make the Pedersen device work so it was never going to be like there's there's 10 of them here and they're putting up this hail of fire there was going to be one here one there one everywhere and it wouldn't have made any difference so 
Pedersen device never fielded, wouldn't have made a difference. The gun that was fielded, which was absolutely a horrible design and a bad idea, was one of my favorite things, one of my favorite things in the world, and that is the artillery Luger. And first of all, they're visually stunning. An artillery Luger is a visually stunning weapon. You look at it and everything from the uh, tangent sight to the long barrel to the uh, uh, holster detachable stock, it's all very stunning. It, was a, it, it was, really was. But when you actually use it, uh, to me the stock is not very useful because it, it's kind of loose and it's never, you know, it's not just one of those, it's just not a great thing. But some people use it. Okay, fine. Um, the regular magazines are fine. The 32-round drum magazine with its associated loader are absolutely the worst contraptions in the world. And while you can get them to work, you're, you're never going to be able to load that thing with, with cold hands. When your hands are numb and, and cold, it's going to be very difficult to load that. And... Uh, so yeah it was a terrible idea the it had no balance it had no it didn't have the kind of range it was it was like let's take something existing and try to make it into a little carbine and it didn't work it didn't work out they produced an immense amount of them uh they produced them up until i think at least 1917 and probably into 1918 but um they just didn't they they just weren't very effective they weren't they're awkward, they're kind of clunky to use, uh, but they're visually very, very stunning and very, very cool. I mean, it has that, you know, very cool German styling. Frankly, if I were in World War I, I'd rather have a regular Luger and more magazines. And in fact, they should have, they could have probably done better if they had an extended, maybe a 15-round magazine uh, for it rather than the 32 rounder I think they would have had a much better better idea with that and I think that the um, you know the 32 rounder is just just a joke they even tried to use that with their first what was it MP18 submachine guns and it was a ridiculous ridiculous so um, they basically uh, you know nobody the, I think only a few com countries ever bought them again I think uh, Persia bought some, and maybe Portugal or something. There, there were a couple of things bought. A couple of countries bought them after the war. Never really used them. So the, the most useless weapon of World War One from a design perspective, has to be the artillery Luger. But I will also tell you when it comes to what is one of the coolest weapons from World War One, it, it's undoubtedly the artillery Luger. So it's there are two sides to the coin. Okay, next question. Which, what caliber, which caliber, I'm sorry, is better for a defensive rifle? 7.62 NATO or 5.56? Or is a PCC a good choice? I'll, I'll, start, I'll start backwards on that. Um, PCC, I have them, I shoot them. Uh, my problem with them is they just don't have the range that I, that I want. Or sometimes they, they don't have the power. So I don't think, unless there's an overriding reason to use it, um, somebody who's recoil sensitive and, and all the rest of it, and, and you know you can go into weapon selection all you want. 
there probably are some people who a PCC is a better choice. I would say just generally speaking, when you're looking at 762 NATO or 556, uh, there is no real other choice because of what we talked about before availability and price uh, we don't know what's going to happen to 762 by 39 that could become very very scarce um, there there's still been a few shipments you know that were underway before the trouble started last year but you know that stuff from russia is gone so unless somebody else steps up and starts making it um, I think there's going to be a shortage of that. So it's going to become hard to get. 556 is all over the place. Whatever it costs, it costs, but it's there. 762 NATO is there. Now, when it comes to between those two, which one would I choose? Well, for me personally, I can choose 762 NATO because I'm a big enough guy. I can carry it around. I can manage the recoil. I can do all that stuff. However, if I tried to hand that to another person, they may not be able to manage it at all. You know, so there you go. Uh, you know, think about a teenage boy who's maybe shot a 410 and maybe a 3030. Um, they're probably not going to do very well with it. Or a spouse who only shoots very seldomly. Um, very seldom, I should say. Um, and doesn't like the weight of the rifle and, and has hard, doesn't have the upper body strength, is not used to that rifle. So, you know, those are just two instances of somebody who maybe a 7.62 is fine for me, but 5.56 is a lot better fit. The only couple of reasons why I would choose 7.62 over 5.56, number one, because I like it, so I'd choose it. Uh, number two, if I was in an area where there was a lot of cover, and a lot of things that I kind of wanted to punch through where I thought 7.62 NATO could do it and 5.56 could not. So I would, I, would look at, I would look at that. I would also look at am I going to be engaging any kind of cars or vehicles or something that's, something that's a little bigger? Or am I out in the woods where there are bears? You know, bears are pretty rare. And if there's real huge urban trouble um, I don't know you know <laughs> if Antifa is burning suburban neighborhoods which they want to do make no make no mistake I mean they've even said it you know they they want to get out into the suburbs and make make the suburbanites pay maybe they even want to get out into small towns and make them pay I don't know so with that kind of deal are you really that worried about bears well i'm probably not in which case I'm, i might just have a 12 gauge laying around somewhere so if i see a bear i could deal with it with a slug and with a uh, buckshot but i'm really looking for the democratic party street army known as antifa you know i'm looking for those guys so i don't know that i really want 762 the, the other thing that would mitigate this, oh, and there's actually a funny story associated with that. The other thing that would mitigate this is if you have to do a lot of moving on foot or even in vehicles. You know, part of the reason that the, the British and other countries got rid of the FAL was it was not a great rifle 
to run in and out of an APC with or in and out of vehicles with. I mean, it's long, it's heavy, and you know what? Just it just wasn't suited. To that five five six weapons are a lot more compact and easy to wield. So uh, I think they would use the word wieldable, but they were easy to wield. So they're a lot easier to wield. So that that was part of the reason that um, you know seven six two NATO rifles were were put aside for 5.56. Not the whole reason, but just part of it. So if I had to do a lot of riding around, or a lot of walking especially, 5.56 makes a lot more sense. The gun's lighter, the ammo's a lot lighter, I can carry more of it. Um, you know, they talk about the uh, what would Stoner do, and uh, all that nonsense. I'll tell you this right now, I have a Colt SP-1 carbine, uh, one of the one of the first ones, and that gun is way light, and I can carry thirty round twenty or thirty round mags for that. Um, I can carry a lot more of that than I could seven six two NATO. Um, and in and the few times I've been out, and this is civilian stuff, with people who are you know fancy themselves as gun experts, and you do a lot of walking. The guys who are carrying the M1As, <laughs> the heavy magazines, the, first of all, they're not carrying as many rounds. And second of all, the weight of their rifle and their magazines and ammunition is wearing them out. So that's another factor. But all in all, you can't really go wrong. Um, if you're shooting at longer distance, I like 7.62 NATO. You really want to put a hurt on something, 7.62 NATO is great. So, But I would say that from pragmatically 5.56, but there are cases where you could use 7.62 NATO. And here's the funny story. I was listening to another podcast, and they were talking essentially about the same subject of, you know, which... Which caliber do you really want to walk with? I mean, if you have to do forced marches, you have to move from point A to point B. Of the three or four members on this panel, I suppose is what they were, only one of them had been in in uniform, and this was a Marine. So I assume he probably pretty much knows the deal on a forced march or a, or a ruck march or whatever you want to say which is similar and what he was trying to articulate was similar to my experiences which is hey when you're carrying stuff it matters it all matters not so much the lightweight because you're going to carry a lot of weight but how much you can carry carrying 500 rounds is better than carrying 200 rounds um he was trying to make that point, and he was basically told by the moderator, who is who is a turd in my opinion. Um, well, I went elk hunting with my friends, so I know what it's like being on a on a forest march. And this guy tried to explain it to him: the the pace, the carrying of other things. You just don't carry your own weapon, your own ammo, and your own goodies in your rucksack. You wind up having to help carry other things too at least for a, a time you might have to take the machine gun and and uh and and march it a click or hump it as we'd say you might have to hump it a click and then you give it back to an assistant gunner and and they they pass these things around so that one guy isn't carrying the heaviest piece of equipment the whole way you share all that 
If you got mortars, one of the more fun things to carry is a base plate. Even small mortars have a base plate, and none of them are light. None of them are fun. So those things are um, absolutely, absolutely there. Um, so he tried to explain. I almost threw my tablet. I was so angry because this civilian guy, yet again, just doesn't know. He doesn't know the life, and yet he actually thinks that he has the same insight as somebody else and can argue with them. You know, the thing he should have done is shut up and listen to the man with the real world experience, which was this other guy on the panel. That's like me. I know nothing about policing. I know nothing about it. So I don't profess to say, well, you know, I did this or that, and I'm like a policeman. No, or I know that because I know about policing because I did this. No, I be quiet and I listen to the people who do know about that. And and I try to learn from them. But this guy couldn't do that. He absolutely could not do that. So I I sat there and I listened to this and I almost I went on to their thing to put it, make a comment and say, Hey dude, elk hunting with your buddies is not the same and he made all kinds of outrageous claims like he was carrying a hundred pounds of weight in in some civilian backpack and you know had his rifle and you know first of all you're going elk hunting you're not carrying a basic load of ammunition you're probably carrying what 10 rounds maybe 20 rounds uh your your scoped deer rifle which is probably a, let's just even say it's a 300 magnum um does not weigh what an M249 or an M240 or even an M4 with all the gadgets on it and all the uh, ammo you have to carry and plus you have to carry other stuff like radio batteries and you know we used to carry you know the radio man doesn't carry all the batteries everybody carries a couple of batteries because those things they last about 30 hours and then they're gone um, the, you know, everybody has to carry a whole bunch of other stuff. So you can't sit there and in a civilian context say, well, I marched, you know, I, wa I went elk hunting because you're not carrying the kind of stuff that, you know, we all carried. That's just all there is to it. And uh, this guy's bogus. It's bogus. The other thing, too, is I guarantee that they weren't keeping a pace. Like we would do... You know, a lot of times the standard was 12 miles in three hours. It doesn't sound very fast, but believe me, when you're carrying stuff, it's fast. Um, and, and, of course, you know, the other thing, too, is you're, you're wearing army boots and army uniforms. You're not wearing the lightweight, cool hunting clothes with lightweight boots. And I guarantee this guy was not marching 12 to 15 miles. Guarantee. I've never seen an elk hunter do that. You know, I mean, I don't know a lot about elk hunting, but I know more about elk hunting than this dude knew about <laughs> military rucksack forced marching. I guarantee that. And so I, I was really taken aback and really offended by that because, you know, how dare this guy? It's almost stolen valor. Not quite, but it's about as close as you're going to get. So anyway, um, you know, jackasses will be jackasses, but understand that it's very important as to what you're, uh, what you're carrying, how much, and, and how all that works. Okay, let's go next question. 
this is something we talked about last couple times why are 2011s so popular um, well because something has to be popular something has to be the new hotness 2011s are the new hotness uh, frankly my opinion of 2011s is they're a waste of time and a waste of money there's so many high capacity nine millimeters out there now that you certainly don't need a 2011 which is a high capacity nine millimeter based on the 1911 and this a lot of the people who are touting about how hot they are, are people who who don't like 1911s which i find to be strange but you know hey what it is whatever it is but yeah it's the new hotness um, i don't see any reason for it um, you can get a whole lot of other things and in many cases you can get them cheaper and why would you you know why would you want to why would you want to go for a 2011 so i don't know why they're so popular other than they're the new hotness Two years from now, it'll be like 30 super carry, you know. <laughs> People will be forgotten. And, and all these guys who bought $4,000 2011s will be scrambling to sell them. Okay, next question. Is, was the SVT rifle, that's the Soviet SVT-40, well, they had the 38 and the 40. Mostly, though, people say SVT, they're talking about the 40. Rifle as bad as they, the experts, say it is. Uh, I would have to say that it's it's not a bad rifle. I'm going to find out because I'm probably going to use use one in Red Dawn, Kansas coming up this winter. But um, they're actually, I think, pretty good. Now, the problem is they have a long bolt design. They don't have a tipping bolt design like a Garand. So they're a lot longer, uh, a little clumsier. But they they seem to be fine. I mean, I don't I don't have a problem with it. Um, the myth around the SVT-40 was, well, the Soviet soldiers in World War II were a lot of peasants and they couldn't keep it going. There may have been some truth to that, but the real truth was, it took about three or four times the amount of effort to produce one SVT as it did a Moisin Nagant. And when you're fielding millions of men. Um, you know, you're trying to field 500 divisions, which is what, what the Soviet army had in World War II. Um, you'll take the four Moisins over the one SVT any time. And the, Moisin, the, the SVT was never designed to completely replace the Moisin anyway. It, it was just designed to increase the firepower. So they would have these things distributed out. And in fact, they had them distributed out in their platoons and things. In fact, in the Korean War... Um, a lot of U.S. lessons learned. People kind of thought that the SVT was supposed to be a BAR equivalent. It really wasn't, but they but it was used kind of like that by the communists. So that's what they they thought it was. Because obviously we never fought the Soviets in World War II. They were allies. So it's it's actually a good rifle. Another thing to know is the first ones on the market way back, like in the 50s and or late 50s, early 60s were surplus from Finland where they had just worn out a lot of them had worn out just kind of got fixed up so they could sell them surplus um, and the reason the Finns got rid of them was hey it was kind of old technology it was battle rifle technology nobody was making it or parts why would they invest in doing it just for a, a comparatively small number of guns so they just sold out of it and and went other other directions but um, the Finnish guns were kind of worn out they'd used them so much they'd put a lot of wear on them that tells me they're not that bad so 
there you go. It's actually a pretty good, uh, pretty good rifle. It would have been very interesting. I've said this before. If it had, if the British could have gotten it in 1939 and chambered it for 303, could they have, could they have fielded a lot of them during World War II and had a semi-automatic battle rifle? Oh, interesting. It's not a whole lot of difference between 7.62-54R and 303 British. So probably could have been done fairly easily. I understand that there were some Canadian, some guns imported into Canada and sort of semi-sporterized and converted, but I've never seen one, and there's not much on them in writing. Here's another one. Why wasn't the SKS designed or modified to take removable magazines? Um, I think the answer to that is when it was designed um, removable magazines really weren't a thing even though the STG 44 was out there uh, removable magazines were not widespread the US didn't use them the British had them but they always kept the, the rifle in and used the chargers to, to do it uh, the SVT was the same way um, the, just the concept that you would carry a whole bunch of loaded magazines was not, not it. So consequently, um, being removable wasn't that big of an advantage because you were going to load the thing with magazine chargers anyway. Um, you know, stripper clips, we kind of call them sometimes. So they designed it that way, and it held 10 rounds, which was good. It was twice as many as the Moisin. It was semi-automatic. It was an uh, intermediate cartridge. Everything about that was good, except the times were changing and you know clearly by the end of the 1940s they knew they weren't going to use a lot of SKS's the AK-47 was going to be developed into the rifle they were going to use and it had all the other advantages including magazines so rather than go back and try to usually when you try to modify something it never works out as well as you would hope so they they never really did that i think the chinese did the chinese had some uh but you know the contour of the stock was not was not that great it, it was more of a traditional rifle not an assault rifle um, putting a longer magazine on it just really wouldn't work and and actually the the soviets were given the things away by the by like 1951 1952 anybody who'd take them they'd give them to because they had the ak-47 in full swing so, you know, they were just getting rid of them. They weren't going to put any more money, time, or effort into them. They fundamentally worked. So, and they were very reliable, very robust, and all that. So they just gave them away to whoever wanted them. And that's all it is. But um, it's, a, it's a nice rifle, but I can understand, you know, using one. Yeah, go ahead and charge one of those things in the cold. We had somebody use one during uh, Red Dawn, Kansas, a couple years ago. And uh, yeah, it was miserable because had to take his gloves off just to get these things to load. And, and of course, your fingers get really super cold and you got to dive back into the gloves and your fingers, you know, never really get warm again. So I can see that in cold weather, the SKS was not a lot of fun to use. So they they got rid of it. And that was that. Okay. Oh, here's a related question. Is a 7.62 by 39 obsolete? My answer to that is no. I, I just think that for what it's supposed to do, it does it. I mean, you're, you're talking something 250 yards, 
practical max range. You're talking full auto fire that's controllable. You're talking about a bullet that's that's comparatively large, does a lot of damage. Um, you know, and it's out there, and and that's the biggest advantage is it's it's out there in the millions and millions and millions. So consequently, no, it's not obsolete. It will it won't be obsolete. Fifty years from now, there'll be people trudging around with AKs. Guarantee it. Guarantee it. Just like there are people, you know, think about think about rifles that are fifty years old now, uh, M16A1s, you know. I'm sure if you go to Vietnam, you can still find some. You know, the South Vietnamese Army had a whole passel of them that basically got given to the the communist Vietnamese. So I'm sure there's a bunch of them around there. You know, I'm sure that you know rifles really don't wear out. If you all you have to do is protect them. Rust is a bigger enemy of rifles than uh, anything else. But yeah, there'll be there'll be AKs will be out there. Look at some of the AKs that have been in the Middle East. And how horrid they look, but they still still operate. There's a lot of them around, so that's it. Does five four five by thirty nine have a chance, or will it will it survive or be replaced by five point five six? Well, you know, if you'd asked me this two years ago, I would say there was a chance that five point five six would replace it, and it would just kind of go down in history and and that. But since the invasion of the Ukraine, I think that. Effectively, Russia is all in on it, so it will be around. The Russians will; it'll be their first-line cartridge for the foreseeable future. Uh, countries like Ukraine, they're probably going to use, depending on how much Western aid they get, um, they'll probably use a mishmash of things. Uh, it'll still be around. It'll still be around. Um, I think it's outstanding. I think uh, um, it's the one thing that could improve the AK and it did. So yeah, the 545 is an outstanding cartridge. And I don't think it'll be it'll never in Russia the Russians will never adopt um they will never adopt a uh, 556. So but the Poles have they've they've converted their or replaced their AKs the 545 with the uh, um 556. So it interesting. Here's another one related to that. Does the 9 by 39 have any future? I would say probably not. I, I just don't see I don't see a supply of ammo for it. I don't see a use for it. 300 blackout will, you know, if you want to shoot suppressed, 300 blackouts around. It's available. The guns are here. It's a lot easier. Um, 9 by 39 is very cool. But I just don't know that there's a big enough market to support it. 300 blackouts got the advantage. Okay, here's another one. Do cap and ball handguns have any defensive purpose? Uh, no, 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 no. Um, I, I love the things. I mean, I love the things. I love shooting them uh, on my little tiny property up in the... <laughs> up in the 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 hinterland i love walking around with one in a holster but i also understand that hey if i take it out it it could misfire you know they if you take and i know there are people who will disagree because they're geniuses and they're experts but your chance of a cap and ball misfiring is much greater than a 
cartridge firearm. Um, so therefore, you know, you have to kind of realize it is what it is. You're going back to very, just like a flintlock can misfire, you know, hey, it's, there are certain, the stars have to align a certain way. Now, cap and ball is a little better than flintlock, but still, you know, the, the cap has got to be on there. It's got to be struck hard enough to go off. Uh, you know, the, the, the little nipple it's on has to be unclogged enough so that enough spark gets in there to ignite the powder charge. Um, you can't have a piece of cap fall down into the mechanism or else you won't get a second shot off. So there's there's a bunch of things that, uh, you know, the wedge has to be tight on Colt-style revolver. It, it's on and on. It's its own thing. And um, I would say no, that the um, it, its day is gone. Can you use it for certain things? Yes, you can if you're willing to accept its... Uh, uh, limitations you're you're totally good to go okay here's another question do you think that the soviet sv oh that's not svt druganov it's just soviet druganov do you think the soviet druganov or the romanian psl are still viable sniper slash dmr rifles um well, I have to preface this by saying they're 60-year-old technology now. So um, when you kind of look at that, you say, "Ooh, <laughs> you know, that's a uh, that's that's a long way." Um, the fact of the matter is, though, up until about the year 2000, they they weren't that bad. Um, but since the year 2000, tremendous strides have been made, and I think you would you you would be if you really just want to hit something, and you really don't care. You know, you're not trying. You're not a military rifle collector or anything like that. I think getting a, you could get a Ruger American, or um, I forget what they call the inexpensive Savage. Um, you could get one of those, deck it out with a decent scope, put a bipod on it, and you would have a better rifle, a more capable rifle. Better is subjective. More capable means there's some quantifiable things I think you would have better accuracy I think you'd have a better variety of calibers I think you would have a a broader spectrum of scopes that you could easily mount on it um, and so all those things would would count now does it mean that the PSL and the Druganov um, SVD Druganov are bad things no um, they're fun to shoot. They're still effective. They're, they're like an M1D or an M1C. They're as effective as they ever were, but given the envelope of weight and length and everything else, uh, there, there are more capable choices out there today. It's not, you know, it's not 1946 anymore. It's not 1963 anymore. Um, so there are there are things that are out there now you know are they good and reliable and all that yes by all by all stretches and by all measurements they are so they're 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 good guns but really if you're worried about if you're a military collector they're awesome if you're worried about hitting a target 
and that's your primary concern then then there are other things I would get and even some civilian like I said civilian rifles um, will outperform them I'm positive that's um, just the way it is you know just the way it is get a Ruger precision rifle you know and you will you will way far outperform them as far as semi-automatics go um, if you get a any any kind of a you know enhanced AR-15 or an enhanced AR-10 based uh, rifle you will you will do very very well um, so there's no need to to go after those however if you're operating in a third world country and the bad guys have them uh, don't write them off because I, you know there was a lot of mythos around it especially the SVD that you know it could hit somebody at 1300 yards and they even had that that nonsense in American Sniper face it if you've ever looked through one the four power scope is it is it's kind of a joke I mean it's it's the kind of a scope that you would you wouldn't even put it on a 22 today you really wouldn't now it's got a cool reticle and it's militarized so it looks it looks cool it's got a cool finish on it and you know it, it has it looks military it looks rugged but you wouldn't put a scope like that on a 22 today you just wouldn't so so there you go um, and it's certainly not this super long range you gotta remember it's it's firing 7.62 by 54 rimmed and even in its even if it in its you know kind of the best presentation for uh, precision cartridge it's it's not that great I mean it's it's okay but it's not that great but you know they were never designed to be this long-range high-end tool they were designed to be something carried by a rifle squad so that from 200 to 600 meters they can engage a point target that's what it's designed for that's what it does and it does that very very well but there are other things if you're looking for that same capability um, there are other there's just a whole bunch of other choices that would be actually more cost effective because the PSL and the uh, especially the SVD are in the collector's realm now so um, you know you're paying a lot more than what the intrinsic value of the rifle as a tool is so there you are that is it and that is it for this uh, edition of old school guns number 158 and again if you have any questions or comments go ahead and email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com or go ahead and leave them in the comment section on podbean but until then this is old school guns out